0: Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and for the gracious gift of our Saviour, Lord Jesus. We praise you that by your power he rose from the dead and even now is seated at your right hand interceding for the saints. Thank you for the insurance we have that because he lives, we too will live and spend eternity with you. Forgive, forgive us if there are times when we doubt. Give us eyes of faith to see and believe. We thank you and praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and we pray his guidance in all we do and say that we would bring honour and glory to your name. We pray that you will strengthen James as he brings your teaching to us. Increase our faith, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 20 from verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name.
1: Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Excellence. Hope you guys uh, who are living in school term schedule that that was a a good break for you guys or a good time uh, for you and for the rest of you where you're like, wait, it was school holidays? Just keep on chugging, guys. Great job. All right. Now, we are continuing on with our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, Kids, I just want to say that I really appreciate how awesome you guys have been as you've joined us for the last couple of weeks here. Uh, And I have a question for you guys just to get us started here. How many kids here believe that a place called China exists? You guys believe that? Yes? You guys believe me? Now, let me ask this. How many of you kids have been to China? Isn't that interesting? So you guys believe that China exists, but you've never actually seen it. Da-da-da. What about you, uh, adults? Do you believe? Do you believe, I don't even know what I just said. Then, uh, do you believe that a place called Tuvalu exists? You guys, mm, um, y- yes. Yes. Say, Haley does at the back there. Uh, Tuvalu is a real place. The odds of anyone having gone there are astronomically low. And, but I'll ask anyway, has anyone ever seen Tuvalu? So Tuvalu is the least visited nation on planet Earth. Not because it's not beautiful, uh, because, but because it's a very, very small place in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Approximately 2,000 people a year from you know, the 7 billion people on the planet visit there. And yet, right, you will now, by virtue of me showing you a photo and me telling you about it, no doubt, believe that it is a real place. And what this sort of thing highlights for us is that we like to think as a people that live in a contemporary, modern, sort of scientific, secular age and all this sort of stuff, that we believe things because we understand in the power of science and observation and all that sort of stuff. But most things that we take to be true are not things that we have necessarily seen seen or observed for ourselves, but because we've heard about these things from other people who we trust. So everything, I'm willing to bet, that you guys believe about the moon is because you've listened to scientists and astronauts and all that sort of stuff, who we've been there or done calculations and all this sort of stuff, but I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, it's a big enough room where I could be, but I'm pretty sure we don't have any rocket scientists here. I'm barely sure we don't have any astronauts. If you are one, I'd love to chat about it later. But this is the thing, right? It gets to the point of we often think, That seeing is believing, but so often we believe without having actually seen something. We believe on the power of the testimony of others. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see somebody who wanted to see before they were willing to believe, but then Jesus tells us that there is a blessing for those who believe without seeing, and we're going to think about what that means for us today. So we're going to work through these two uh, separate sections to the passage, Jesus' first appearance to the disciples, and then Jesus' second appearance to the disciples. Uh, kids, again, if I use any words or anything like that that you're curious to know the meaning of, I give you full permission to shoot your hands up. Some of the Year 7 girls, uh, I, they heard me were to use, use a word last week, and then they looked it up in the dictionary and then proceeded to inform me that I perhaps used it incorrectly. So I thank you for that feedback, ladies. That's always appreciated. Uh, So feel free to ask guys. So we just love we love that. All right. So here we go with Jesus' first appearance. It says that on the evening of the first day of the week, so the same day that Jesus has risen from the dead, when the disciples, okay, were together. When we talk about the disciples here, it's probably not just the twelve, it's probably the bigger group of people who were following Jesus. It says they were together and with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I just want to show this to you really quickly, because we have seen through John's gospel, this repeated refrain of people being afraid of the Jewish leaders. So in John chapter seven, people are whispering about who Jesus might be, but they don't want to say anything publicly for fear of the leaders. In John chapter 9, the blind man's parents don't want to say anything too much for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue by the Jewish leaders. Okay. Same thing in John chapter 12. People are believing in Jesus, but they don't want to say anything publicly for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, again, by the Jewish leaders. And just last week, we saw that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jewish leaders. I bring this to your attention because I think that this fear that the disciples are experiencing is important for understanding what happens next in this passage, right? It says here that Jesus came and stood among them, all right? And it's interesting because this is not the first time that we've had Jesus do some funny things when it comes to the spaces that he works in. The way that it's described here is not just that he sort of walked into the room, the doors were locked. It's more a sense of all of a sudden Jesus was there. Like, how did that happen? We've seen previously when people have tried to grab Jesus and lay hold of him, that they weren't able to get a hold of him. I speculated parkour Jesus, maybe, all right, as an option might be how he avoided capture, but here he seems to be doing something a little bit more like the X-Men character, Kitty Pride, where he just appears, like he just sort of walks through the wall and is all of a sudden amongst them. What's really important though is not how he got there, although you know the miraculous edge sort of gives us a hint about what his resurrection body might be capable of, but really what's important here is the message that he gives to them, peace be with you. All right, now we'll come back to the significance of that in just a second. But this is the message that he gives to his disciples upon his resurrection from the dead. Peace be with you. And it says that he showed them, that he, and, he said, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They saw the risen Lord. Remember, as as far as John's gospel goes, they haven't yet seen Jesus. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus last week. She thought he was the gardener. Her eyes were able to adjust and she recognized him for who he truly was when he spoke her name. But the disciples, upon discovering the empty tomb, John and Peter went back, seemingly reflecting on what they had seen. But now Jesus actually appears before them in physical form. And when they see him, they're overjoyed. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that we need to see these two things together in order to understand what Jesus is actually getting at here. Because this is not the first time in John's gospel that we've seen this idea of peace and the idea of receiving the Holy Spirit coordinated with one another. So at the meal that Jesus shared with the disciples before his death and resurrection, we saw this in John 14. He said that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I did not give to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So you can see here that Jesus has coordinated the Holy Spirit being given to them to remind them of all things that Jesus has said. He's saying that he's giving them his peace and they should not be afraid. And now he rocks up, And he says, peace be with you and receive the Holy Spirit in a situation where they have been afraid, experiencing the same sort of fear that lots of people have felt of the religious leaders who would be persecuting them for their faith in Jesus. So we can see here that just as in John chapter 14, we had a coordinated where Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit and the giving of peace, and that they did not need to be afraid, that their hearts did not need to be troubled. Now we see Jesus in a situation where, where the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus says, peace be with you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that Jesus has returned from the dead, now that Jesus has conquered the grave, he gives his spirit He gives his blessing of peace upon the disciples in the context of saying that I am sending you out. That you have been hiding here behind these locked doors for fear of what it would mean to follow me. But now, as I send you out, peace be with you and receive the Holy Spirit. But then he says to them this really tricky thing that we need to spend a little bit of time on. And kids, this might get just a tad complicated, so if you have asked questions about this later, you feel free to ask me, but I'm going to take my time and see if we can explain this. But Jesus says this really tantalizing thing. Jesus says to the disciples there in the room with him, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them they are not forgiven. Now, this seems to put an extraordinary amount of power in the disciples' hands, doesn't it? It seems as though Jesus is putting them in charge of the judgment of the people around them and whether or not their sins will be forgiven. Now, I don't think that that's actually what's happening here when we look at it in context, but it is a little bit tricky, and I, and I, and I get that. So I'll do my best to unpack this just a little bit here, but if you want to ask more questions about it later, please feel free. So the first question is, when he says you, who is he talking about here? Is he talking about the apostles? I don't think so, because like I said, I think there were more people in the room than just the apostles. Is he talking about every disciple as an individual? Do each of us, did each of them have the ability to simply forgive and all that sort of stuff? Again, doesn't quite seem to fit, or maybe it's the church in the sense of he's talking to all those early followers of his, and he's talking to them as a group. And I think that probably is what is actually being gotten at here. He's speaking to these group, this group here as a representative of all those who are following him, and so he's saying to God's people, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. If you do not forgive, they will not be forgiven. So the question then is, is that how can the church forgive or not forgive sin? Especially where even so far in the gospel, not, uh, so not in John's, but in Mark, we have the Pharisees rightly ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Like to the Jewish mindset, the idea that people could forgive sins and not God, that was a weird concept. Jesus himself had claimed the authority for the forgiveness of sins. He said that that's something that's been given to him. And also, when we see the disciples go forth and preach the gospel, they don't act in a manner where their forgiveness is the thing that matters most. So we read that Peter said this Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Notice how he doesn't say, I will forgive you. He's not saying it's the people who need to forgive you. He is still saying that forgiveness is for the Lord to extend as he needs to. And so I think that the best way to read this, okay, and look forward to chatting with you later if you'd like to about it, is something that we hinted at in Acts 13, where Paul writes, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I think that when Jesus says here that if you forgive sins, their sins are forgiven. If you're not forgiven, they're not forgiven. Remembering that it's in the context of this missionary work that he's doing, remembering they've just been given the Holy Spirit, who is going to remind them of all things that Jesus has said, the gift of the Spirit to the disciples was a gift to equip them for teaching and equipping God's people. That when he says here, if you forgive or not forgive, so it will be done, it's probably something like you will teach what is forgiven and what is not forgiven and it will be so. Now I know that's a little bit of a jump. I I know that that's not necessarily what it looks like, just stripped of context and all that sort of stuff. But I think that makes best sense of what's actually happening here. But I'm very happy to keep talking about this further because this is a tricky one. You can go to the commentators, you can read a whole bunch of things on this as always, I want to be open and honest with you guys about the stuff that we have clarity on and the stuff that we're not certain about. So for example, the Catholic Church, they take this really strongly, and this is where you get the idea of like the priest needing to absolve people of their sins and all that sort of stuff. So when they go into the confessional box and they say that the priest declares your sins are forgiven, this is one of the verses they'd point to and say, that's why we do it this way. Protestant churches, we've never sort of seen that need for a priest to be a mediator like that between us and God. But this sort of verse does, you know, make it a little bit tricky to understand how that fits together. So I've given you my my best answer. Uh, But like I said, feel free to think about it a little bit more, have some more conversation around it. All right, but As as much as we wanted to unpack that so we can try and understand it well, it's really Jesus' second appearance where we get to sort of, I guess, the main thrust of of this idea of seeing and believing, right? So the setup goes like this. It says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, uh, which means twin, all right, one of the twelve was not with Jesus when he came. And so the other disciples told him... We have seen the Lord. All right, they've gone forth and they've told him that we have seen Jesus. We've seen him with our own eyes. They've said to somebody who they were incredibly close to, who they'd spent years with, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replies, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, all right, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's actually saying more than I need to see, isn't he? He's not just saying, I need to see the risen Lord. I literally need to touch it in order to believe. Now, we're not given any great insight into Thomas's psychology at this point of time. We don't know if it's because this news seemed to be too good to be true We don't know if it's because he genuinely doubted that something like this was possible. We we, we just don't know. But the key thing that is being emphasized here is that Thomas, before he was willing to believe, wanted to see. Otherwise, he would not believe. It says in a week later, so the following Sunday... His disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, again Jesus came and stood among them and said the same thing, Peace be with you. Now we're not told about the disciples having any interaction with Jesus to let him know what Thomas had said. We don't know if this is something that Jesus had just heard about or whether he knew it miraculously, but he goes straight to Thomas and he says, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. You've asked to see and touch. I'm here before you. See and touch. But in an absolutely beautiful response, Thomas now, upon seeing the Lord Jesus, does not actually go forward and touch the nails in his hands or the hole in his side. Rather, he simply replies with, My Lord and my God. It's the first time in the entire gospel that somebody outside of Jesus himself has referred to him As my God. We've seen how Jesus has claimed equality with God. We see how Jesus has spoken in code to lift himself up to the divine so that people could be in no doubt as to what he was claiming about himself. This is what he was killed for. But this is the first time that we see somebody actually say openly, My Lord and my God. Seeing for Thomas genuinely was believing. This was the moment for him when the penny dropped and he could declare with all of his heart, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, really uncharacteristically, Jesus doesn't normally in response to people's declaration of faith add some extra information. He normally simply lets it stand. But he says this in response to Thomas here. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed." are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it seems clear that he means those people who would come to believe in him. Yeah, this description doesn't seem to fit anybody in the gospel so far. Maybe the centurion whose son was healed earlier, maybe he sort of fits in this category. But but it seems to me that Jesus is clearly now pointing forward to those who will believe, but have not seen, they are those who have been blessed. There's this sense here that going forward, most people are going to come to faith in Jesus not by seeing him themselves, but by believing in some other way or coming to believe through a different way. And it's with this thought just hanging there, that the narrator of the gospel, John, now adds this note. He says John performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So many people think... That if maybe I could have just seen Jesus or if God is really real, why doesn't he just rock up and show himself to me and then I would believe? But we know from the fact that Jesus appeared to so many people in his own time and yet they did not come to faith, that seeing is not always believing. We've seen many, many, many people come face to face with the risen Lord come face to face with Jesus himself before his resurrection, saw him do signs and wonders and miracles, and yet did not come to faith. And it's because seeing is not always believing. So often, belief precedes seeing. If you wanted to get on a plane to Tuvalu, you better hope it's real. Because otherwise, you're flying out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no hope of finding a safe place to land if that place ain't real. Our belief so often precedes our seeing, not seeing preceding belief. And so what we need to understand is is that at the cornerstone of our faith is this idea that we believe and have eternal life, not because we've seen these things with our own eyes, but because we trust in the testimony of those who have. All right? We look at John, we hear the story of Thomas and this sort of stuff, and as we hear about these signs and these wonders, then we go with John, and when we read these things, we recognize that all these things are meant to testify to the fact that we may believe and have life in his name. So I don't know if, if you find this disconcerting. I don't know how influenced you are by the idea that you need to see something in order to believe it, and it just seems so difficult to believe sometimes and trust in this thing that I've never actually been able to see for myself. But again, I'm sort of wanting to push on that this morning and encourage you and say, so many things that you know are by virtue of faith. Where well, you haven't actually seen it for yourself, but you've trusted what somebody else tells you. Even down to, the, to your eyes. Do you know that when you, you, you see things visually, it's actually upside down and your brain has to flip the image inside your head to actually make sense of it? Do you just know that's how sight works? Like literally what we receive from outside of us needs to be interpreted and translated by our brain in order for it to make sense to us. There's so many things happening in the world around us that need to be constantly interpreted and understood and evaluated. And when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, in the Gospels what we have is this testimony of what he has done, and it's up to us to make the decision. Am I going to believe and trust in this? Are these testimonies trustworthy? Is the people who revealed it to me worth following? Are they faithful? That's why I always say that if you question the authenticity of the Gospels, you have to come up with some other reason why ten of the eleven surviving Gospel or auth- sorry, ten out of the eleven apostles go to their death proclaiming that this is true for no personal gain whatsoever. These guys that were there at the scene, these guys who would have been best placed to decide if something wasn't true, you have to come up with some other explanation why they would be willing to go to their death, not in some sort of suicide pact, but in different instances being put to death because they proclaimed the Lord Jesus. That is trustworthy testimony. Testimony. Book of Mormon, I don't know if you've ever, ever come across that one as an example of a different faith statement where it goes in a different direction. But basically, at the front of the Book of Mormon, you'll read these signatures saying that, yes, we testified to the fact that Joseph Smith saw these things, and they are true. More than half of those guys within their own lifetime later said, uh, didn't actually see it, sorry, got talked into it, wasn't real. People don't go to their death. People aren't persecuted for a lie. People go to their death proclaiming that which is true. And so, my friends, we have to see the other message in this, that as we come to believe and trust in this, that what Jesus wants us to do upon believing in the Lord Jesus, whether it's from seeing him directly or believing the testimony of others, is that he wants us to be sent without fear by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim to others that they too can come to faith that having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, having believed in the Lord Jesus, that we would not stay locked in a room for fear of what might happen to us if we make our faith known publicly, but rather we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we would know that the peace of Christ is with us, we would know that we have the Spirit who is an advocate for us and who equips us to tell people about what Jesus has said, we have to now move in that Spirit and leave that room and proclaim the gospel to others. We have to accept responsibility as a church family to make sure that every Sunday, every Friday night, every carols, every Easter, everything that we do, that we are always going out and inviting people in. Because that's what Jesus has given us as a responsibility to do. Peace be with you. The Holy Spirit be received so that you may be sent out so that sins may be forgiven and as people might come to believe and have eternal life. So friends, this morning, I hope and pray that you receive this well and that we as a church family would accept this responsibility to not stay in a room afraid of what our public declaration of our faith would mean, but rather to be willing to go forth and proclaim what the gospel has revealed to us so that others may believe without seeing and join us in eternal life. Let's pray for that now. Father God, thank you so much for these Gospels. Thank you for the signs and the wonders and the miracles that all point towards the truth of who Jesus is. Thank you that Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated death and that he's appeared to those whom testimony we can trust in order that we might believe and have eternal life in him. And we pray now this morning, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit freshly upon us. Lord, if we have been stuck in fear, if we've been afraid to clear our faith publicly, Lord, we confess. We acknowledge that instead of moving in your peace and by your Spirit, we have stayed in fear. And we've not, given, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. That, that's what you speak to us in your Word. And so, Lord, may we be a people who is committed to going out, to being sent, to seeing more and more people hear the good news so they too might trust and believe in you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name.
0: Amen.